Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. This episode features Ramez Nam discussing his debut novel, Nexus. Nexus is receiving a ton of positive buzz. It has garnered strong reviews and enthusiastic chatter at most of the major science fiction sites, and with both science fiction and mainstream book reviewers alike. Although Nexus is his first work of fiction, Ramez is no stranger to writing. His previous book, More Than Human, Embracing the Promise of Biological Enhancement, received the 2005 H.G. Wells Award for Contributions to Transhumanism. As he discusses in the podcast, he has not one, but two books due out in 2013, including a sequel to Nexus and a nonfiction work about technological adaptation and climate change. I hope you enjoy the interview, which ranges across all of these subjects. Hi, this is Dan Nexon, and I'm talking to Ramez Nam. Ramez, are you there? I am. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy today. Dan, thank you for having me. So in this podcast, we'll be talking about your new techno thriller, which is an exciting read. Uh, it's called Nexus. But before we get started, why don't you tell us a bit about your background, which in this case, I think is extremely pertinent to the content of the book. Sure. I'm a computer scientist by training. I spent 13 years at Microsoft. My last job there was managing much of the work on the Bing search engine related to uh, relevance, so finding and ranking web pages, and that's all very heavily artificial intelligence work, neural nets and so on. I also have one previous book, a nonfiction book that came out in 2005 called More Than Human about the science of augmenting human abilities, making people smarter, stronger, faster, longer lived, and the ethics and politics of it. So as you've suggested, a big part of what you're interested in is transhumanism and coming transformations in the way that humans experience, interact with, and interface uh, with reality. Um, and Nexus itself is primarily concerned with a moment of, you know, a moment of that broad transformation. So could you talk more about that? Yeah, I'm very interested in this idea that we're using technology to augment ourselves, to make ourselves... Uh, sort of more capable than we are naturally. And I think this is actually an old uh, trend in humanity. We've done a lot of things to augment our abilities, whether it's eyeglasses or sports supplements or going to the gym or literacy, um, all of these things. But now with technology, we have sort of more potential to make uh, more transformative changes to capabilities than ever before. And that's, to me, one of the, the really big frontiers of the future. What kinds of developments do you think are going to be the most important for that? Well, there's a number that are possible right now. Uh, there are uh, very simple ones. We know how in animals to uh, give them gene therapy that changes their genetics so they're stronger or so they can run faster. Those are interesting, but they're sort of you know, so-so. Uh, extending the human lifespan is one that's got a lot of attention and is very uh, important to a lot of people. Augmenting intelligence 
in various ways, whether it's how fast you can learn something, your ability to focus and concentrate. We're sort of on the edge of that in a certain sense with various uh, drugs we have out and so on. But that's going to be a very big one for people, and that will have a big impact on society. The one that I write most about in Nexus is the ability to connect our brains together, to connect mind to mind and share information that way. That's happening in a, a very crude sense. The precursor of that technology exists right now in technologies that let paralyzed people control robot arms by tapping into their brains, that pumps video into the visual cortex in the brain of a blind person so they can see. Those things exist. And so Nexus, the drug technology in this book, is sort of a, an extension of that technology uh, 20 or 30 years into the future. That's a great segue for you to give us the lowdown on what we would need to know to have any kind of conversation about the book. Sure. The book is a near-future thriller. The idea is that someone has invented a technology, uh, which is packaged as a drug, called Nexus. It's used as a street drug. Uh, what it really is is uh, little nanoparticles that get into your brain, attach to your neurons, and transmit what they're doing wirelessly and listen for other transmissions of other people's neurons. So if two people both take it, if you and I both have in our brains, then we'll get sort of a weak sort of telepathy. Um, the story tracks a group of young scientists, graduate students in San Francisco, uh, working on extending this technology, improving it, boosting the range, building apps on top of it, making the fidelity better, versus a government agency that is cracking down on this technology because it's illegal, because other bio and nanotechnologies have been used for bad purposes in this near future world, uh, versus a, a third force, which is a foreign government, the government of China, that may or may not be using this technology for mind control, espionage, assassination, and so on. Now, some of these prior uses that you talk about in the book that lead to, uh, in fact, an international convention banning certain kinds of drugs and augmentations, uh, those are actually quite interesting. And I thought it might be uh, nice for you to talk a little bit about those, although they're sort of unpleasant, actually, in the book. They're very unpleasant. And I'm an optimist. I'm a techno-optimist. I believe the technology for the most part, is something that we use to make our lives better. I think you can look at that, look at the world around us right now and say, hey, we are a lot better off than we were decades ago uh, because of technology. Uh, but no technology has ever been invented that has only good uses. They have bad uses too. So in the book, I talk about bioterror attacks that have killed tens of thousands. I talk about uh, apocalyptic cults that have tried to use biotechnology to create new super races, sort of Aryan super races, if you will, that are engineered to be smarter and stronger and uh, completely sociopathic. And I talk about the use of uh, neurotechnology, of brain technology, to create cults of another sort, where the members of the cult are blindly obedient, rendered blindly obedient by the technology to the whims of the leaders. So all of those are sort of background for why society has uh, become so fearful of this sort of technology and has cracked down on it. What's extremely interesting about those examples and the role they play in the politics of the book is that they all involve people essentially doing things that 
people have done to one another for, you know, as you, as you sort of alluded to when you talked about transhumanism at the beginning for hundreds or thousands of years, right? They all involve, you know, so cult mind control instead of using behavioral conditioning techniques, now you use uh, an engineered virus. Or, you know, you think you have an Aryan super race, why not create it and then make it immune to a pathogen that you're going to use to, to wipe out everyone else to immediately bring in uh, the, the period of Aryan dominance, not have to go through all that pesky you know, <laughs> warfare to get to it. Um, but it does seem that there's something different about the Nexus drug and the kinds of capabilities associated with it, which are potentially generally transformative in a way that those aren't. Was that, is that right? And is that, was that deliberate if it was? Uh, Nexus is certainly a more profound technology than the ones that, that have been misused in the past in the book. Uh, you know, it, it's further along in the future. Um, that is both good and bad. It has tremendously more positive possibility to bring people together, to uh, empower groups of people to make better decisions, to make scientific breakthroughs happen more quickly because scientists have their minds linked directly. But it means that it also has more potential for abuse in terms of the mind control applications and so on. Let's talk a little bit more about the plot because, you know, at heart, as you've described this elsewhere, this is a techno thriller and it's amazingly fast paced, uh, but it also has some very well drawn characters, uh, including uh, a protagonist who some people have suggested uh, there might be a little bit of you in. Uh Maybe a little bit, but I think there's a little bit of me in, in many of the characters. Uh, the protagonist is a young scientist. Uh, I think he's 27 in the book. He's uh, late in his Ph.D. program, um, and, and he's an idealist. He sees the positive applications of technology. He's working on it late at night, kind of in a secret way with some of his friends to make it better. Um, and then he's completely tossed into the deep end of the pool way over his head as people start dying and bullets start flying. And he links up with uh, a operative who herself is not entirely a normal, a normal human. Uh, in her... That's right. The, the other uh, character that gets the most screen time, you'd almost say the co-protagonist, is Sam, Samantha Cateranes. She's an agent of uh, an organization... ERD, the Emerging Risks Directorate, which is a self-department of the uh, Department of Homeland Security. And uh, she believes very much that this technology has huge abuse potential and needs to be cracked down on. And a lot of that stems from her own personal experiences, having been a survivor of, of uh, uh, growing up in a situation where the sort of technology was massively abused and having seen firsthand how bad some of those abuses can be. Now, one of the running themes in the book is a theme that, you know, harkens all the way back to uh, debates about Plato, and this is whether or not we should have certain guardians of society or whether sort of small-D democracies should prevail. And I was struck in this note by the way in which the organization that she works for talks about using forms of augmentation that they're themselves trying to suppress as kind of a necessary evil uh, to protect humanity. And that did get into sort of, I thought, those kinds of themes. At the same time, a lot of the struggle is a struggle to kind of take this capability out of the hands of governments and give it to the people so the people are able to make of it, you know, what they will to allow small-D democracy or autonomy to prevail. Um, is that something that you think is very central to the, the kind of debates we're going to have about the future trajectory of these kinds of technologies? 
it's extremely central. It's it's central to the book. The question of who is in control, um, and it's it's central to the debate over biotechnology already. When I wrote More Than Human, my first book, um, it was in a time when there was a an organization called the President's Council on Bioethics, appointed by President Bush. And this council was fairly conservative. And they produced reports arguing that enhancement technology, technologies that made people smarter or longer lived or enhanced their other abilities, uh, should be restricted by law. That we should use, quote-unquote, the power of the state to restrict access to these things because they were so dangerous. So already they never had their way. But already we have this debate happening in society with people very close to policymakers arguing that we should restrict access to this technology rather than encourage it because of its possible beneficial aspects. The sense from this book, at least, and I have not read your earlier nonfiction work, is that at some level these kinds of developments are inevitable and it would be better uh, to allow people to benefit from them. Uh, than to try to restrict them. But at the same time, you do have these sort of horrific backstories about things that have gone horribly wrong when people have tried to use these technologies uh, for reasons that are quite nefarious. Right. Well, there's no black and white. There is uh, neither complete ban on these technologies nor complete anarchy with anything goes is a desirable outcome. A complete ban just simply isn't feasible because if the technologies offer real benefits People will seek them out. And a complete anarchy uh, isn't very realistic either, and it's not necessarily a good idea because you want them to be tested for safety. You want uh, people who are using them for negative purposes to be cracked down on and, and laws created to guard against that and so on. So really what I'd like to see is that sort of model where we allow the beneficial uses of technology and try to restrict the negative uses while allowing the, the positive ones. Now, is there something special about the fact that one of the main effects of Nexus, which you've discussed, is this kind of you know, telepathy, essentially, uh, and the ability to, to finally bridge the, the barriers of subjective human consciousness? Is there something very particular about your decision to make that a, a central feature of this drug and this, this particular kind of augmentation? Well, it's a technology direction that I'm fascinated by. It's when I wrote More Than Human, it was the the uh, aspect of the, the future enhancement technology that I found most fascinating, and I think that's for good reason. When you look at the way we use technology now, I uh, think about computers and their descendants. We used to think of them as um, things for computing, things for doing individual work, so you could word process. But really, the reason that we use computers or tablets or um, smartphones, which are really just computers, now is to communicate. It's all about increasing our ability to communicate. And when you go back as far as the printing press, or even before that, communication technologies have been transformative for society. They've increased our collective intelligence. They've increased our ability to innovate. They've increased the ability of ideas to spread from one person to another. So it seems to me that where you know, a pill that makes you much stronger is an interesting science fiction trope. It doesn't have that much impact on society. Even something that makes you individually smarter has less impact on society than something that increases the connectivity between people, because that, that increases sort of our group intelligence, if you will, as well as having implications for empathy, world peace, I and mean, all these, these questions of how would it really play out. And that's an interesting note, because in many ways, 
the dream of breaking down these car- these barriers between subjective consciousness of a kind of direct empathetic and or direct of having direct empathy right of really understanding literally understanding the experiences of others and submerging being able to submerge yourself in a, a, a kind of collective whole is a central impulse of human beings right and we see it in particular in in various religious traditions uh, and you also spend some time in the novel uh, on the subject of Buddhism uh, so I was interested in uh, particular that kind of way that that what what is enabled by this technology is a kind of aspiration of, of human spiritualism and spirituality right well I think many things are enabled by it uh, just like many things are enabled by books right you can uh, read books for pure entertainment you can read books uh, to fill you up with hate you can read books to learn about some scientific technical topic uh, you can read books on spirituality and so that's certainly an aspect of any communication technology but yeah I, I do talk about uh, the application of this uh, in a, a Buddhist sphere and I posit that uh, experienced meditators sort of more ability to control this technology that resides in their mind which I think is is somewhat plausible at least um, and are using it uh, to achieve some of the goals of Buddhism which is uh, one of which is the uh, elimination of the notion of separation between self and other uh, the the proverbial idea of we are all one well what if you could actually touch the mind of another you might be a little bit closer to that and you say you're a techno optimist so you expect that that overall these kinds of technologies if they develop uh and how they develop will in fact promote human understanding and world peace and all that good stuff yeah, I mean, I don't want to be naive. There are plenty of problems in the world, and no one technology solves all of them. And any new technology that solves some problems will create some others of its own. But in general, I think, yes, that uh, technology that connects us better uh, does have positive impacts on the world. In, in fact, there was a, a study just in the last few months talking about attitudes towards um, blacks and gays and analyzing the impact of television on that. So it turns out that one of the best uh, determiners of how prejudiced you are as a person or how accepting you are of people different than you is your exposure to people different than you. That's why people in cities are typically much more liberal, much more tolerant than people in small communities because they see a wider diversity of people. But it also turns out that even if you don't see a wide variety of people, if you see a wide variety of people on television, you become more tolerant as well. So that to me is a, a prime example of here's a, a media technology, a communication technology that is directly impacting our society in a certain way. Huh, it's funny. One of the things I do in – I teach a science fiction class or a science fiction and politics class one of the things we do is we use sort of future imaginaries in science fiction as a way of thinking about the ethnography of the time periods in which they're produced. And I always have them watch the, the sort of the Star Trek quote-unquote gay rights episode, uh, which to them is hopelessly hokey because they see uh, gay couples on television all the time. Why would you need – from their perspective, why would you need to tell this allegorically? Um, and then that gets into this precisely this kind of discussion, which is that um, you know people who opposed gay rights, for example, were right to really fight it in the in terms of media exposure. Um, yeah. So, uh, but one of the things that uh, so one of the things that I was thinking about when I was reading uh, 
reading Nexus is that this is, as is very clear from the discussion we've had, a, a big ideas book, right? And it's it's a book that's located in many ways very traditionally within science fiction as a way of thinking about the implications of science for human relations and trying to chart a course. Matt is thinking about charting a course into what the author expects to be future developments. But that got me sort of thinking about two things. Uh, the first uh, concerns your decision to write a work of fiction. You've primarily written nonfiction before this. And, and how was that transition to telling, to sort of working through those ideas, but in a fictional setting, how was that for you? What was that like? Well, it was tremendous amounts of fun. Um, I had a, a certain amount of insecurity about it. You know, you, you don't know if your story is going to be good. Um, with writing nonfiction, it's a little bit more deterministic, I think. Uh, even there, there's a lot of skill involved. But, hey, I can, I can capture the topic and I can describe it to you from all sides and so on. With fiction, there's another aspect, which is, is the reader enraptured? Is the reader sucked into it? Does the reader find the characters plausible and believable? Uh, and so on. So I, I wasn't sure when I started what sort of skills I would have. Um, but in point of fact, the actual process of writing fiction is tremendously enjoyable. Um, and I think one of the things that I really wanted to do that was rewarding for me or sort of true to me philosophically and how I wanted to communicate about this topic also worked really well for the book, which is that I, I didn't want to make it a black and white book. I wanted to to show from multiple perspectives why some forces thought we should crack down this technology, why others thought we should encourage it, and all for different reasons, and make that as true to life and as genuine a set of uh, desires and motivations on each side as possible. Um, I enjoyed doing that, and I think it made the characters more real, and readers seem to like that as well. Are, are there going to be more uh, fiction books coming in the future? This is uh, labeled number one on some of the, uh, the, the title shots. There are. There are two more books coming um, in this world. So the sequel will come out in September. Um, Nexus works fine as a standalone novel. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, but it definitely opens up a world with more room in it. And so another book in the same world comes out in September. And then the third book uh, will come out sometime in 2014. And you also have a new nonfiction book coming out. Is that correct? I do on a completely different topic. Uh, but also focus in the future. The nonfiction book is called The Infinite Resource, The Power of Ideas on a Finite Planet. And basically it's about innovating our way uh, beyond some of the environmental and natural resource challenges that we face now. Climate change, peak oil, deforestation, freshwater shortages, and so on. And so your view is that, that it is possible, in fact, to sort of innovate in ways that, that go beyond simple harm mitigation, but actually begin to reverse some of the, the, the bad stuff we've done to uh, the globe's carrying capacity? It's absolutely possible. I mean, you look now at the uh, riverways in North America are the cleanest they've been in decades. Uh, the ozone layer is healing somewhat ahead of schedule. Um, lead concentrations in the environment are you know, less than a tenth of what they were in the 1970s. Acid rain is you know, almost a thing of the past in North America. So in all of these ways, when we innovate at, with the right regulations and the right economic incentives around us, uh, then we can innovate to do the right thing and, and make the right thing happen. The counter to that would be is that what happened uh, arguably was that in the developed world, cheap uh, unregulated production was outsourced to other countries, and hence we see the kind of disasters that we're, we're witnessing now in China and elsewhere in the developing world. 
There is some truth to that, but when you do the math, it still turns out that on a per capita basis, uh, you know, our energy use and our CO2 emissions around the world have not grown at nearly the rate that our wealth has, for instance, or that on a, on a complete basis for the whole planet, everything put together, our release of ozone-depleting substances is down. Um, so it is true that there's differences regionally, and typically when a country has less wealth, it is more willing to do things that are environmental. So, yeah? So, yeah, you just uh, garbled out, unfortunately, just as you were getting to the, the climax <laughs> of saying, you know, why it was that that despite all of this, this despite the sort of outsourcing of pollution that uh, – that that we were still going to work out, you know, come out much better at the uh, end of the tunnel. Um, are you? Have you thought about uh, making ecological issues uh, a center part of uh, of one of your novels? I have. They'll show up a little bit more in the second novel, uh, but they're not the focus of this series. But we'll see after these three books are done where I go to next. And it's certainly it's hard to write about the future without writing about uh, climate change and other ecological issues. So one of the things that I – so this book has been uh, incredibly well-received. I mean, as I, as I sort of mentioned, I've been perusing some of the, the reviews online uh, in preparation for this interview, and they're just fantastic overall. I mean, the, the, the sort of harshest criticisms are about maybe there's some uneven pacing because it's a debut novel. But by and large, people seem to be really enjoying it, and people seem to be buying it. That must feel very rewarding. It's incredibly rewarding. Uh, it's gone extremely, extremely, extremely well, and I'm just very pleased. One of the things that people are sometimes interested in is the, the kind of question of, of how people get into the process of writing fiction. And I've talked to some other people who have made this transition from kind of a, a, a technology professional or, or academic or scholarly or semi-scholarly background into writing novels. But I get the sense that yours... Your, that this transition for you was not typical, right? Did you do? Did you sort of do the whole workshop thing? Did you? No, I, I did no uh, training in writing whatsoever. I did not write a single short story before this novel. Uh, none of that. I just kind of launched myself into it. So, what was your model for how you set about constructing the book? Then, did you have certain things in mind? It reads very much like, um, you know, it's very visual. It reads very much like a screenplay in some respects, although with much more density of characterization than your typical movie, obviously. Well, well, thank you. Um, I The way that I write typically is I have to daydream a scene. I have to imagine a scene in my head like a movie before I can write it down with great fidelity. So I think that's part of why it, it comes across fairly visually because that's just how I construct things. Um, I am a very... Uh, outline-focused, sort of top-down writer, if you will. Uh, I put down a detailed outline. My outlines live in Excel, of all places. Um, and then I iterate on that outline uh, for quite a long time until, really, I feel like, scene by scene, I know what's going on in the book, and then I start writing. And something you do, which is uh, tremendously difficult to pull off, are shifts in perspective. So this is a story that's not told from a single perspective uh, throughout the novel. And so you know, that's compliments to you. I think that many established writers have trouble shifting uh, between uh, point of view characters. But it also occurs to me, having listened to you talk uh, for about 20 minutes now, that, that that's almost essential to the whole idea behind the novel. You have to have different perspectives in order to fully 
make sense of what happens as Nexus diffuses and people start to develop the capacity to overcome South other boundaries. I think that's true. There are so many different ways that it has an impact. And again, there's the, the positive views and negative views. And to show those faithfully, I needed to show them from the perspective of people that had good reasons to view it in a positive light or a negative light. So if so, I guess one way to uh, to close this off would be to ask you, you know, if there's this one thing that people should know before they read the novel uh, that we haven't talked about, uh, what would that be? My gosh. Well, from a purely uh, craft standpoint, I'd say that uh, one of my rules of writing came from David Brin, who has a, a piece, a video online where he says, your job as a writer is to get people to come to you and say, I was up till 3 a.m. reading your book. I lost my job because of you. My kids didn't get fed because of you. So that's been my goal. So I apologize in advance if that happens to you. And that certainly seems to be what people are saying, you know, that the, it, it is a page turner. It's very difficult to put down. Well, thank you so much again for coming on the show. And I hope that when uh, your next novel comes out, we might be able to do this again. Wonderful. Thank you, Dan. The preceding episode of New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy was recorded on January 14th, 2013. Thanks for listening. Bye.